at the time I had absolutely no idea what a writer's fee was, uh, which is ironic because I was in an office with basically full of uh, cabinets with people's contracts, so I could have just checked. But some of these people were quite big Hollywood names. So whereas I was just starting out, I literally had no idea what to say. And my, my employer at the time basically suggested a figure. And the number was very high. It was higher than what I thought I should be asking for. But he was the more experienced, he was the older, wiser producer. I took his advice. So I turned up to this meeting. It lasted a couple of hours, which is long for a meeting. Um, we're sitting there, I'm telling them all these ideas. They're loving it. We're talking about structure. Then closer to the end of the meeting, it gets a bit more personal about like my relationship with this character. How do I relate? What is it that I understand about the character? And the meeting was over. And they said, oh, listen, one more thing. Uh, what's your fee? So I broke the fee down to them. And I can't tell you how I felt the temperature in the room drop. It, I, my heart sank and I knew at that moment there. I gave them the figure that I was advised to give against my own instinct. I got back to London because I had to travel for that meeting. And uh, my employer asked me, how did the meeting go? I, I said, great, but I don't think I'm going to get it. He said, why? I think they just don't want to pay that much. So I was honest with him. I wish I had been honest with myself. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Carpe Diem from your host, Luca Rocchini. Today's guest is British award-winning film producer and director Philip L. Philly from Lyon, France. Philip studied for a BA in French at the UCL in London and then he studied a Master in European Audiovisual Management in 2006 in Spain. Then he worked as producer for many productions and directed his first feature, If It Be Love, in 2015. Since Philip has been working as archive producer for feature and documentary series such as Williams, Narcos War, and the world's most extreme for National Geographic, Netflix, and Channel 4. He loves writing film reviews on his blog, 30 Image. Finally, he recently moved to Lyon, France. We are going to have a chat about his experience as producer and director and his love for writing film reviews. Nice having you here. How are you these days? Hey, Luca. Thanks for having me on. I'm okay. Thanks. How are you doing? I'm all right. I'm all right. Taking life, uh, living life as much as you can and uh, kind of lockdowns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as much as you can, right? <laughs> Do what's possible. Anyway, uh, first of all, like... Let's have a chat about your background and all, uh, you know, what's your past, um, how did it all start and, uh, um, yeah, what's your background before starting working in, in films? Sure. Um, before working in films, um, gosh, I mean... 
before I was working in movies, I was working behind a bar in Soho in London. So um, uh, that wasn't exactly a career ambition. Um, those were good times, though. But um, no, I, I always knew I wanted to be making films uh, or telling stories one way or another. Before I even knew I wanted to be making films, I actually thought I'd end up writing. Um, although I had absolutely no idea what that meant in terms of you know what it took to be a writer I had no idea what it meant to be published um, all I knew was that I wanted to get stories out onto a page words onto a page that was always the priority for me um, but with film I mean film has become such a integral part of my life uh, I feel lucky to have something like that in my life you know it's so fulfilling and something that actually uh, I feel very passionate about and that actually earn a living from which is lovely but um yeah i i you know early on when i was a kid uh when you're a kid you go through several options you're changing your mind every day as to what it is you want to do right um i guess i was lucky that i had parents who who had well actually a family that that always had good taste in film so there were certain movies that were always on in the background at home uh my father had bridge over river kwai playing uh, pretty much on a loop. Um, I remember Polanski's Frantic uh, being on in, in the background quite a few times, which is definitely one of the more underrated uh, ones from his catalogue. Um, and a lot of, not just American or, or French cinema, a lot of British cinema, a lot of Polish cinema. So gradually I was exposed to those movies. And I think I was maybe six years old when the TV was on in the background uh, on a Sunday. And um, I remember Eric von Stroheim's Greed uh, was playing on a Sunday afternoon. I don't know if you ever heard of it. Greed, it's, it's a massive um, uh, silent epic. Um, and I was six years old and it, it just came on and I, I, I just, decided to see what this was about and I, I had absolutely no interest in in silent black and white movies at that age um, but something about it had me hooked and um, I remember the next day I was still thinking about it and at the age of six I, I felt quite impacted by that you know I realized suddenly that hey you know I'm actually still thinking about this movie the next day there must be something to this um, and then I hit my teens and uh, Independence Day came out in cinemas. I don't know if you remember at the time. It's easy to forget now, with, especially with the failure of, of the sequel that came out recently. But when Independence Day originally came out, it was huge. Everyone was going to see it. I mean, the cinemas were packed. And I remember seeing that shot of, uh, you know, when the UFO is floating above uh, the White House and the, the yeah. whole White House blows up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was hooked. I just had, to, I kept asking myself, how the hell did they do that? And this is back in the days when there was no YouTube, you know, um, you couldn't just log on and do a bit of research about making ofs. It was, it was actually really hard to get a hold of making ofs. And I remember I was very much into uh, the X-Files and I was very much into like the James Bond movies. So there were these conventions around, like fan conventions or geek conventions as they're often called. And um, I'd go to those and I remember there was this guy who, he was just selling loads of stuff and he had this VHS tape 
with a, a half an hour making of Independence Day. I was like, right, I need that. It was like five pounds, which at the time was my, my pocket money. Um, so I was like, yeah, I'm buying this. And it was like this half an hour making of hosted by Jeff Goldblum. I think it was a rip from an NTSC cassette because it was the colors were completely desaturated. It was horrible and it was really tacky. But there was like a five minute sequence about how they did that shot where they where the UFO blows up the White House. And so for five minutes, I, I would just play that five minutes over and over again. And basically what they had done, they spent three months building a replica of the White House, like a tiny little model. And they got everything right. All, all the little paintings and the furniture in the Oval Office, they, all the detail was there. And there was an entire team whose sole focus was building this model replica of the White House for three months. And they blew it up in one second. <laughs> and I thought, holy shit, is that what it takes to make, to make a movie? And people will do that, that kind of commitment, that kind of passion. And I, I was hooked. I, um, there was something about that that I, th I was very attracted to. And um, my, my taste in movies kind of continued to, to um, expand when my, my parents said, you know, you can't just watch Independence Day, you have to watch Kishlovsky's Three Colors trilogy, for example, and, and things like that. Um, we had some pretty good cable channels. One of the channels we had was Arte, so I accidentally came across Jim Jarmusch's Stranger Than, Than Paradise. I had no idea who Jim Jarmusch was. I had no idea what a white shot was, but if you've seen it, it's, it's a movie which is entirely composed of single white shots, right? And you would think to yourself, well, there isn't really much going on in a movie like that, but actually there is. There's a hell of a lot going on. I realized that there's a kind of metaphysical aspect to, to cinema. Um, there's some kind of like um, intangible magic to it. And one of the things that I wanted to be when I was a kid, even though every day I was changing my mind, the one thing that kept coming back was magic. And I wanted to do magic tricks. Um, that was something I was, I was very attracted to. And so the I thing with magic tricks that. is that, <laughs> right, I think you and I might have spoken about that, right? And I, I it was something I, I tried to, to learn as much as possible because when you see a magic trick performed it's it's mind-blowing you know it's so amazing and what you do is you you pay to buy the the gear the kit right and then you have to learn to do it and the better you are at doing it the more impressed other people are so you watch people being impressed but the problem i had was that the more i learned the trick right the trick the less magic there was for me yeah so I started to get really disillusioned with the idea of being a magician because once you knew the trick, the magic was gone. With film, I realized that no matter what you learn, you know, you learn all of the machinery, you learn all the aspects, all the different crafts. And even though you know the trickery, even though you know the methodology, the magic remains. It never goes away. And that's, yeah, that's what's pretty, pretty kind amazing. of amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh yeah, for me, actually, you know, as well, like I, I kind of studied all different type of arts, like um, more or less uh, intensely. But actually, I love films so much that I didn't want to know the tricks. I want to leave it as magic. And then uh, what happened, uh, I became the cinematographer, one of, you know, actually they make the magics, you know. And I was impressed as well when I was a child. You remember mm -hmm. watching this guy doing the magics and I was like, wow, I want to be, I want to do something like that. 
But then, as you say, like once you learn the magics, you're actually able to watch a film in two different layers where you can uh, look at the tricks, but you can still follow the story and actually it helps the story as well. So it, I haven't to lose anything by learning the tricks. So absolutely it's interesting. And there's something to it, which is out of your hands as well. You know, even w when you're sitting in the edit, which is where you actually watch the movie come together, there's, there's some things that you just can't explain. You know, if you pull two frames out of this shot, make this shot half a second shorter or half a second longer, and it changes something and you don't know what, it's kind of like, it's a feeling that you have, you know, something is different and you can't put a finger on it. Um, yeah, it must and be that's the magic. And I mean, that's not even talking about the performance of the actor, you know, because that, that's a whole other layer. I mean, if you start looking at, at good actors and you see what's going on behind their eyes, I mean, that, that is, that is, there's magic there. Yeah. What the actors can pull is, I, I don't know. <laughs> you change everything, you know, once you have a good actor in front of the lens. I just okay. This is a series. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah as long as they're well lit and in focus, then you're okay. <laughs> I think a good actor, even without that, will come out. Actually, as I, as I always, you know, remind uh, my students. Uh, actually, the look is less important. The quality of the look than the sound. It is. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, you can treat the film, you know, you can shoot them VHS like I don't sometimes because it feels right better than other things. Uh, but sound has to be clean and good. So if you have a good performance, that's what the audience look, you know, they look yeah. at the actor, your character face, you know, all the time. So that's why you want to lead that well, you know, you want to make that clear to an audience, you know, like, like a good writing. But at the end of the day, like, you know, um, yeah, everything else is around to help that and sustain that. Well, that, yeah, that it was time to learn the tricks of the magic. What was it that was making the magic? And so I had to basically decide or find out how I was going to learn, you know, in a pre-internet age, where do you go to learn about filmmaking? Um, film schools in, in America were horribly expensive. Um, it just wasn't accessible to myself and my family for me to go to somewhere like NYU or UCLA. Um, that just wasn't a possibility. And there were good, there are very good film schools in the UK um, and in London, um, but also quite expensive. And unfortunately, it just, it just wasn't an option for my parents. I had to go and do academia. Um, so I opted for a BA in French at UCL. Um, uh, which seems counterintuitive, but first of all, I, I knew a lot of the literature because some of my education is French. Um, I have no French background myself, but uh, I just happened to go to French schools for part of my, my growing up. So uh, I started up to the BA in French because they, they also had a very good film history and theory program. Um, and I thought, well, I'll kind of be studying film. It won't be physical production, but I could learn some theory. And this was very heavy theory. This was looking at Godard and um, some very obscure essays, um, André Bazin and uh, Krakauer and uh, Eisenstein, of course. And so you're learning to make films 
not by doing but by by watching so actually the good that it came out of because people are very quick to dismiss film theory and especially heavy theory but what does come out of it is you learn to look you learn to see you know like i think a musician kind of get, gets his or her ears tuned by learning to listen i think it's important that filmmakers start with learning how to how to look and how to see i remember in school i hated mondrian you know the painter mondrian yeah. who, who does, does the, the black lines over white background and then some of the boxes are filled in red or yellow i thought you know what a cop out man like anyone can do that and then and like I started to read up on it, you know, and and I had a very good art teacher in, in high school and he was explaining it to me. And I realized that I just didn't understand what it was I was looking at. I didn't like it because I didn't understand it. And then even knowing that, I I was doing these this film theory at university. And I remember we were presented with Alain René's uh, Last Year in Marienbad. L'année dernière à Marion Bad. So it's a beautiful film. But at the time, I'm watching this film and I have no idea what the hell I'm looking at. It was incomprehensible to me. Um, and at the end of each term, as it happens, you have to you know, write a paper, right? You have to submit. A teacher gives you a list of 10 questions from the films or the text that you studied that term. You have to choose one. So I chose the one on last year in Marion Bad because I thought to myself, do you know what? I'm going to write about how awful this movie is and how it doesn't make any sense. How did this become like this great piece that everyone has to study at university that is apparently like the seminal piece of filmmaking that has inspired so much work? And the issue was that, well, not the issue, but the amazing thing was that the more I read up on it, the more I, I studied, the more I researched on it, the more I realized what a masterpiece it was. I couldn't deny it. And again, I realized I didn't like it because I didn't understand it. I didn't know what to look at. I didn't know what to look for. Film is very often, it's very often referred to as a language. I don't think that's what it is. I think it's a means of communication, but it has several languages. And every different director will be using a different language. If you look at a Michael Bay movie, if you look at an Alan René film, if you look at a Tarkovsky film, each one of them will put the verb and the noun in different places and tell you, look, this is, this is the language I think is the, not the best, but this is the language that I speak, or this is the way that I think cinema should work or does work, or how, how I want to speak to my audience. You know, the adjective goes in this place. So I became fascinated by, by that aspect of, of how films are made before I had even the chance to understand how to work a camera. And during those four years at university, I did a lot of evening courses and weekend courses and gradually learned on 16 mil because at the time it was just mini DV. It was either 16 mil or mini DV. And trust me, mini DV looked awful. No matter <laughs> what the professionals were saying at the time, there was absolutely no way I was going to start making movies on mini DV. Um, and yeah, then you learn how to load a camera and how to point it. And you mentioned earlier about uh, you having studied other art forms and other media. So I think that's absolutely critical. You know, before I even picked up a movie camera, I was, I inherited my granddad's old 35 millimeter, don't even know what it was, like Lumix, I think. 
uh, or a Minolta and uh, I would just put black and white film in it and snap snap away and then I'd get it back a month later in the post and uh, out of 36 shots you know 35 would be white or completely black but there would be one <laughs> that would be amazing and and I realized how how challenging it is to to light to compose um, and all of that you can learn not just from film but from from painting if you want to learn how to compose look at the masters look at the renaissance um, if you want to learn how to light and, and how to work with stock we'll start with still photography first so you're not spending a lot of money on 35 expensive 35 uh, millimeter film um, I'll tell you one more like uh, one suggestion I will tell like uh, someone who wants to start operating camera it's it's good to know how to dance. You know? Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> Backwards, especially, right? Yeah, yeah. How to move your legs? How to move your waist? You know, how the so there are lots of different type of art forms that are kind of handy. You know, uh, you would never tell. Oh. But it's interesting you bring that up. Yeah, because obviously, as um, I think. You know, th there there's a uh, certain kind of directors who who don't like certain kind of fiction directors who don't like documentary film you know they want they like the artifice of filmmaking and documentary is too natural to them and i think there's a huge loss in that kind of mindset because documentary teaches you to always be on your toes and how to instinctively capture things that are unexpected and when you are a drama fiction director or cameraman especially dop or operator you have to be ready to pick things up that no one else is ready for so yeah i had to say before another podcast uh my playing ground was um shooting stills on 35 millimeter for that so i get up to speed you know just things that happen in front of you with a manual focus, an autofocus, how to pick up that sharp. Something happens there. Nice composed, you know, try right exposedly. Which I kinda know, like once you're outside and you know, you, you put your F stop to a certain amount, like it's gonna stay, you know, until the light changes. So it's not a big deal. And that kind of exposure. But you know, the, the street photography and then documentary, they're amazing for learning on your toes how to shoot something without money and how to get that best. And then I think it's after to move more kind of artificial kind of filmmaking, let's say like on quotes, but yeah, I kind of agree with that. Absolutely. And now, especially everyone's got video on their phones, right? But if you don't have actors, if you don't have sets, if you don't have props, fine, go out in the street, film reality, film what's happening in front of you. And if you're missing a story, you know, I think if you want to hear a good story, speak to speak to someone who's struggling on the streets. You know, speak to a homeless person, someone you've crossed maybe a dozen times where you've never said hello to. Sit down with them, ha have a word with them, ask them what their story is, and you'll you'll find something there. You'll be inspired for sure. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot on the streets. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned a few filmmakers, but is any any filmmaker filmmaker in particular that inspired you? Oh yeah, I don't know where to start. I'll tell you. I'll tell you a funny story. Um, so, for for a long time, I mean, aside from Eric von Stroheim's Greed, where I was absolutely blown away by by that kind of scale of storytelling, 
and the fact that you could still be thinking about a film the next day. Um, mm. I was quite shocked by that at the age of six. But I had this amazing summer where um, I was maybe 12 or 13 years old and my cousins are 10 years older than me. So what happens when you have older brothers or cousins? They go to the video shop with you and they rent all the movies that you're not allowed to watch <laughs> when you're back home with your parents. So I had this summer where I watched... Um, the movies that I remember were Platoon, Natural Born Killers, and Leon. Wow. Uh, yeah, that was a good summer. Um, but I remember watching Platoon, and I had no interest in war movies. But my cousin was like, you got to watch this. This is, this is good. And he's telling me, he's pointing at Charlie Sheen, and he's telling me that that guy is playing the guy whose film who's directing this movie. It's his story, right? Because it's, it's, it's Oliver Stone's experience in, in Vietnam as a soldier. Um, and I didn't understand what he was saying. I was like, so th this is the actor playing out what happened to him in the war? And he's like, no, no, no. The guy who's making the movie, he's being played by the actor. I was like, so the actor is directing the movie. No, no, no. And my cousin kept going on and on trying to explain it to me. And I, you know, it's, in hindsight, it's really naive and stupid that I didn't get it automatically. But I was floored by the idea that such a powerful movie like that was actually someone's real story. Yeah. And that all of these people got together to tell this person's story. They all found it pertinent enough and important enough to come together and, and, and commit to telling this, this powerful story. And I was, I was blown away by that. And I also realized, you know, the thing, I've just finished reading Oliver Stone's autobiography. Actually, it's a fantastic book. I highly recommend it. But he was, he describes in that book how he was making his first short film at NYU and Martin Scorsese was the lecturer at the time. And he, he didn't really seem to have much confidence in what, what he was doing, but he made a film where he comes to New York from the war and he goes through like his old photographs. He goes to the Hudson River and he throws the photos into the river. And that was it. And he was like, I had no idea what I was doing, but that's what I wanted to say. And Martin Scorsese, when the movie was over, no one in the class clapped. As Scorsese said, here you have a filmmaker because he's telling a personal story. It's his. And when I watched Platoon, I didn't know, in my mind, I didn't know that that's what I was seeing, but in my heart, I knew that this is something personal. Um, so I, that really had a very big impact on me because I realized that having a voice is important. And that everyone has a voice, but it's only curated up to a certain extent. And that actually, it's important for us to talk and, and share our experiences because that's what, and you know, that's what enlarges into empathy and makes for a better society overall. I think. But in contrast to that, I also watched Natural Born Killers, which now, all of these years later, is still my favorite film. Wow after all these years. And I, I think it's one of the greatest films ever made. And we can have an entirely separate podcast to discuss that, if you like, um, <laughs> because I can go on about it for a very long time. Um, but that was a movie that obviously caused a lot of controversy for the violence um, that it portrays. Uh, of course, what the movie is doing is saying, look at all this violence, isn't it awful? Um, but what some people were doing was looking at the violence and replicating it. You know, they were copying it. Um, and I realized then as a young, as a young boy that actually, well, film has that power as well to influence. 
Um, hmm. And that, that could be both a good and a dangerous thing. Um, so yeah, I mean, Oliver Stone was a big inspiration, but then again, Alain René was, because I realized there is a grammar and you can, you can create the grammar yourself if you want. Um, Terence Malick now is probably the, the filmmaker that most kind of speaks to me. And I, I think with movies like Tree of Life and um, To the Wonder, I think whatever your personal experience of watching those movies, I think he with Emmanuel Lubezki brought cinema to its obvious conclusion, which is no script, follow the actors. You know, the actors have full reign, okay, to do what they want. They own the character, all right? There, there's no blocking. And you have a director who is kind of holding a frame, a framework, so a location, a character, an arc, no matter how loose, but there, you know, in the director's mind, there is an arc. And you have a DOP operator who is creating that world by following it, right? The mise-en-scene is being created directly in that frame, right? Not on the set. And those films have a lot to say. Uh, they have, you know, there, there are complex ideas in them. And it goes to show that cinema can portray and express very complicated ideas, which are difficult to verbalize. Yeah. And it's like David Lynch. I mean, David Lynch refuses to explain his movies. You know, I mean, I... I I think there are a lot of people who love David Lynch's work who don't like Terence Malick's work. And I find that very hard to understand because both of those filmmakers, they don't want to talk about their movies. They don't want to explain the movies. They know that there's an inherent experience in their films that cannot be verbalized. You know, you spend so much time having to put the movie into words in order to get it made and well financed and made to then make it, to get rid of all of those words and to then have to explain yourself again? No, it makes no sense. That's not what the craft is. Yeah, it's also, I mean, to me, cinema, maybe many arts, like, you know, there's, it's a feeling sometimes. Probably more interesting mm -hmm. to, to see what the other people think about and what they, what they felt, what's their opinion, than rather, you know, it's it's a personal thing, as you say. Sometimes as well depends on the time when you watch something that it might change. Like in ten years' time, you oh, yeah. know, before you might not get it, and then you know when the right times arrive. And that's that's true for all, all the arts, really. And happened to me lots of different times. So yeah, that's that's an interesting point. Um, but now let's go back a little bit. Um, after your studies, like you, you had what? What were your first work experience in filmmaking? You were in London, right? Um, By then, I was in London. Yeah, I, I was born in London, uh, raised in the Middle East, and we came back to the UK. Well, Middle East and Southeast Asia, um, and then came back to London for me to finish school there and then start university. So, during my first year of university, I uh, had a little bit of money saved up, so I shot my first. 16 millimeter uh, short film, uh, which was uh, just a very brief five minute conversation between two people called A Short Story About Capitalism. So that was inspired by Kishlovsky's Decalogue, A Short Story About. So um, this was a short story about capitalism. And um, I was kind of trying to fuse what Kishlovsky was doing with what Oliver Stone was doing. Um, and I realized 
it didn't really work out because you know like we were talking about earlier film kind of has a life of its own and it's also very personal so in the end i was trying to replicate oliver stone while at the same time being inspired by kishlovsky and yet i'm the one making it so the thing that came out was actually neither a stone or a kishlovsky it was just kind of its own unique thing that was a good learning curve as well which is that there's literally no point trying to copy you you have to just really be true to yourself um and that's I mean, that was my first experience was going on these weekend courses and um, hiring the equipment and getting some friends together and, and making a short film. Um, and then I submitted it to film festivals around the world. And guess what? It got into none. Um, it got into one film festival in Japan. Um, I got a letter from Japan saying, congratulations, your film has been seen by an audience of 400 people, um, which I was very excited about. Um, but you know, shooting films is very expensive uh, and writing is not. So I, I focused on screenwriting as much as I could. I bought, I bought whatever book I could at the local uh, bookshop to learn how to template, you know, what a screenplay looks like, what a three-act structure is, um, which of course now I care very little for, but now you can have a six-act structure, you have a 10-act structure, you have a 12-act structure, you know, I mean, are they acts or are they beats? You know, I think that's also something, a decision that a, a writer has to ask themselves when they begin. But, um, so I was writing a lot, really, because that was affordable and mm. very satisfying. Um, and then I didn't really know what to do with the scripts. So I joined a master's program, which you mentioned earlier. It's a master's in audiovisual management, which is essentially, it was a very good program based out of Spain. Um, and it's taught by professionals in the industry. So you would actually have execs from studios and production companies come to teach and met some amazing people and, and heard some you know, amazing stories and amazing insight into the industry. I think what it was was that I wanted to be a director, but I knew so many creative people and so many people who wanted to make movies, but they didn't know how. And I didn't want to be one of those people that were going around wanting to do it but not knowing how and so I thought well if I learn the business side of things then at least I'll know what the doors are and then I can kind of go in and hopefully make a living off of the creative side I think in hindsight if I could go back I would have it's not a mistake but I should have spent a little bit more time learning the creative aspect actually just putting myself in an environment and a community of like-minded people where we would just focus on the making of the film as opposed to everything else the development the financing the distribution you know i was trying to learn too much at the same time um but of course it it led to very good things uh so i don't i don't regret that um but yeah i um Immediately after that, that master's, I, I started to work for uh, as an assistant, as a production coordinator to some great producers, uh, got involved in some, some big, uh, big movies, um, getting to see how these, films, these things are financed, getting to see how stars are brought on, um, and then gradually becoming a little bit disillusioned with it. <laughs> um, you know... It's difficult because I think movies are financed in three different ways. 
One is by mathematics. So you'll have a studio or a production company that has algorithms and they'll say, right, what's hot, what's trending? Okay, that's what that's any scripts that come in on that topic, we need to finance. Okay. The other way in which movies are financed is by heart and instinct. So someone who isn't really interested in the market, but they love a certain topic, they will put the money into a film. So let's say a banker whose wife is a massive Shakespeare fan and she heard that her husband has a Shakespeare script, he'll finance it, you know, whatever the market says. Someone is a massive fan of penguins. They will finance a movie about penguins. Hmm. So, I, you know, and then there's a third way, which is tax dodging, which is avoiding paying tax. A lot of, you know, movies get financed because of the way the film accounting works. As long as a movie is in production, the money doesn't exist on a balance sheet. So it's not taxed. And there's like a revolving door that goes on. So I kind of became a little bit disillusioned with that. And I, I reckoned, God, how, how, which one of those three categories does my work fit into? So I think now I've just kind of pulled back a little bit. I make um, uh, a fantastic living as an archive producer, which also allows me to concentrate on my projects on the side, whether I'm writing, directing, um, I mean, yeah, there are several projects on the go at the moment. Um, uh, okay. Yeah. Well, let's talk first. Maybe at the <clears throat> your first feature film, like uh, when it was 2015, came out. If it be love. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And do you want to tell us about how how did the idea started and what was the process? What have you learned by making it? Yeah. Sure. Um, well, I, I got to the point where I knew enough people and I had enough resources around me where I figured, well, I've always wanted to direct a feature. Why am I not doing it? I had two fiction short films under my belt by that point, both on 16 mil. Um, and, pff, a, a, you know, a heck of a lot of projects on video, music videos, um, mini documentaries. Um, and the aim was always to make a feature film. And I got to the point where I thought, let's, let's just do it. I happened to uh, have some friends who were uh, studying Shakespeare. Um, they're actors. So they're the two leads in, in If It Be Love, Alice Bird and Vinter Morgan, uh, two massively talented actors. And um, they wanted to get some Shakespeare on, on camera. And I had a camera and I wanted to use it. So I think it happened very organically. We, we went into it quite naively because essentially we were like, well, let's, let's just record some Shakespeare on camera, right? And then it was like, well, if we're going to record it, why don't we do it on a nice location? So then it's like, all right, so let's go on a location. It's like, well, if we're in a nice location, why don't we should have proper costumes? It's like, okay, let's get a costume person in. And then it's like, well, if it's costumes and there should be makeup. And then it kind of, got bigger and bigger and bigger and it became a feature film um, which was very exciting but very exhausting so it's what's called a micro but no it comes under the under the category of a no budget feature film because it was shot for 10k wow. so for 10,000 pounds shot and edited delivered uh, for under 10k and that was a lot of late nights um, doing corporate editing work uh, paid for by the hour 
um, just getting whatever job I could in editing and shooting to, to pull the money uh, together. And then also um, the actors are also producers on it. So they put, a, they put some money in. We got a grant, a small grant from an arts uh, fund. Um, and we convinced uh, a private, private, private investor to also put some money in as well. So, so yeah, there were different paths towards financing that film. But making a film is is hard work, as anybody as anybody knows. It's uh, it's tough to raise the finance. And then when you have that smaller budget, something strange happens, which is that you don't have much money to do a lot, but at the same time you're free because you're not you're not hindered with responsibility um in a way you're you're if you want to shoot for an extra day and your camera operator and your sound recorders is happy to then you just shoot an extra day right because it's like look guys we don't have the money to pay for a day so if you're happy to, to continue with us and people just loved the project so they they carried on i mean even in posts like when we were having sound issues in post, the, the the sound recordist and sound mixers were saying, like, give us the material, we'll fix it. In between jobs, they would they would take that on. Um, it was a great feeling. It's great when people love what they do, come together and to bring something good to fruition. And then the movie premiered at uh, the Rain Dance Film Festival, which was an amazing thing because I had been going to rain dance for a long time and one of my first ever weekend courses you know those weekend courses I mentioned to you that I was I started to go to when I knew no I had no idea what to do how to make a movie uh that was a rain dance course and then several years down the line my movie premieres at the festival and they gave it a Friday night 9 p.m slot prime time um it was fantastic yeah it was really good yeah it's a great feeling to have uh your own film screen somewhere like where you actually at the beginning you could imagine that happening is uh you know we're at zero <laughs> you know happened to Absolutely. me as well like you know i was like oh my god i'm winning awards what what like five years ago i didn't have a clue actually i was so terrible <laughs> like, but it's yeah and then and then actually it slows down from there the stranger enough at least for me like uh maybe it's just the next step like a more kind of serious step that it takes quite a bit of time you know get it properly established you know on your own profession it takes a bit longer yeah. <clears throat> you know um yeah i i have never when it comes to directing i mean I don't really know what it means to be properly established. You have directors working on huge projects today, big names, names that you you would recognize, that anyone would recognize. And in between movies, they're not doing very much directing because there just isn't that much work out there. Um, I don't know, it's it's difficult. I'm, I'm now in this kind of... Uh, I'm very happy with where I am, but I, I certainly didn't expect to be doing as many things as I do um, which is also great because it means there's all of these different forms of expression um, there's all these different people that I interact with on different topics and different subjects um, so I'm really happy about that yeah I think you know yeah I understand yeah for a director is it is harder um, way harder like you're my heroes <laughs> it's, you know it's <laughs> tough to get producers as well the producers directors 
to start with an idea and a dream and then uh, see it finalize and seeing people watching it around the world so mm. that's but that's the best feeling is like you know having your child is is that's your child it's your baby <laughs> going around yeah it is and the di the director lives with the project longer than anyone else does you know yeah. that's when it's the director's baby um people come and go but the director is standing alone um and he puts his name up, up, up until the end yeah yeah his, his or her name will always be attached to it yeah for better or for worse and i mean going to you know talking about making your first feature film going in with some kind of naivety is also a good thing because it just means that you're not necessarily seeing the hurdles that are going to come at you all the way down so you've just kind of got this naive childlike attitude towards just getting the movie made you know just get it made just get it made and then every hurdle that comes along is like well we've made it this far just keep going just keep going and i think that's really important and also again this is kind of a cliche right but we always hear about waiting to be given permission you know and if you can work at pulling the resources together that you need to do the minimum for the film that you want to make just start with that and talk about it get people together and you'll be amazed how i was really amazed how people are willing to help and contribute um but i certainly think there's a lot to be said for for a little bit of naivety <laughs> Yeah, I think it's very it's it's key, you know, in the first projects. And then once you have the first experience, it's never going to be easy, especially for a director or producer. I'm sure of that. Uh, but you know, there are things that you're not either not going to worry about, or things that you actually you should put a bit more attention from the beginning, um, or try yeah. to be more realistic. What <laughs> you what you want to get with the budget that you can get. You know, definitely. Um, so to make something that is, you know, it bring it has your name on, and in the future, in twenty years time, it, but it's, there is always, you know, the first projects are the first projects. It doesn't really matter, you know. I remember strangely was when I was studying college. Uh, one, the short, one of the short films that inspired me was uh, I don't remember the title of the name, but it was Lights von Trier graduation film short film i don't know if you've seen it uh, it was this no. man in slow motion going through this window and it just just feelings and shots and and you know th that's that wasn't probably it's not really a, a Lars von trier film in that sense but it, it, right. it lasts in time you know um i don't know there, there is there is always you can see there is some background and something that a director is growing towards his own language as we were talking about that's that's what you need to what what did the directors need to 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 make and create and find their own language uh, once you find your own language like a little bit like kubrick you know whatever genre of film you can say mm. yeah maybe it's, it's it's a science fiction film but this is kubrick you know maybe it is a war film, but this is Kubrick. <laughs> you know, it's actually Kubrick before the genre. Like uh, I, that's how it starts. You know, his first films actually they were not that amazing, probably. Uh, even though I still appreciate, but you can see, like you know, as you say, like at the beginning, you need to kind of um, gather the money <laughs> in the way you can and try your best and be naive 
uh, as he was as well. So he was playing chess in, in order to raise money uh, in Central Park in New York. <laughs> so it's so fascinating, you know, and it started that way. And it wasn't really working for some others. It was actually developing his own language at the end of the day. So that's what a Kubrick film is. It's a Kubrick film and a Lars von Trier film is a Lars von Trier film or Kieslowski. It's It takes time. Uh, it takes lots of patience, you know, to get to that point where actually you can you can see your imprint, you know. So it's important not Absolutely. to draw a line too soon. That's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's it's um, it's a shame that filmmaking is such a difficult thing to achieve physically because it just it takes so much time to find that voice. Um, yeah, I sometimes wish I could. I, I were a musician, you know, I could just lock myself in a room for a weekend with an instrument and uh, knock out a demo. Um, <laughs> I'm aware it's not that easy, but it's possible. Um. Yeah, I mean, yeah, even music, it might take time. <laughs> of course. <laughs> more than, than people think, and then once you, you start having, probably like your soundtrack, you know, when you start adding sounds, you say, oh, it's getting better, it's getting better. Uh, maybe let's yeah. try to improve. <laughs> it, yeah. is, it becomes a long process as well. As well. The same for yeah. artists to find their own voice and a producer. Uh, but that's what I wa actually I wanted to ask you about. You know, seeing how kind of like, as you say, no budget kind of film um, your feature was. Uh, it has an amazing soundtrack uh, by Richard, which we interview. Uh, a while ago yes I know as well yes so, but you had a few musicians I was wondering is it real viola is a real violin actually yeah that's those kind of vibrato vibrato that is kind of like it must be real this is real like how they made it like you had the kind of almost full orchestra at the end of the day they're working for passion as well how do well, you get these all, people together first of all Richard Malconian is uh, probably one of the most uh, talented people that I that I know um, so it, it was amazing to, to listen to him on, on the podcast and um, I there was another composer involved actually on if it be love um, and we we had a good you know we, we, we started out well um, but something just wasn't quite uh, gelling um, and I think it came from both sides um, I think when it actually came down to laying music over the image, I don't know who lost enthusiasm first, but something just wasn't working between us. And Richard happened to get in touch after a few, I think we hadn't spoken for a couple of years at that point. He composed this cello piece that he, that he then sent me a file to completely by chance. Like I've just lost the composer on my feature film, okay? And Richard gets in touch out of the blue with a cello piece, which was exactly a piece of music that I needed for a scene. Amazing. And I was like, there's something about, it was a piece of cello and it was for a scene in uh, Hamlet. It was Hamlet and Ophelia. And it was exactly the thing that I did not know how to describe, but that Richard had hit the nail on the head with. And I got, I got in touch with him. I said, listen, I need a composer for the movie. Would you do it? He was blown away. And he you know richard doesn't really do things by by half measures so his attitude was if i'm going to do it i'm going to do it properly um so yeah he had uh 
he wrote music for an orchestra for actual strings you know he 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 would put together a um i think if i remember correctly some of the pieces were done in a synth first as a kind of yeah of course as a as a kind of template and then he would yeah. go ahead and record it live so that that's how that happened but our process together i mean that that was one of my favorite parts of of making the movie because i i love music and i i am not a musician um I really wish I could be, but there is something about music that just doesn't like me. I could literally be just whacking a guitar like that, like boom, 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 <laughs> and think that I'm playing Stairway to Heaven. You know, in my mind, I'm a freaking genius on the guitar, but everyone else wants to die. So I keep away. <laughs> I keep away. Um, but because I love music um, as much as I do, I love, I love talking about it. And so Richard and I would talk about all kinds of genres of music and... We talked less about the film and more about feeling in general. And at one point, we started talking about string theory. I have no idea why, but all of those things helped to to inform what what ended up in in the film. So that process that was a real creative process. You know, that's two people in a room with some equipment and just just knocking out art. You know, work, great that's work. The best. The best part of a job, is it? It's the best feeling. <laughs> yeah, it's the best feeling. Absolutely. And when you see the music married up to the image, and I mean, he, I remember on your podcast, Richard mentioned that I think he found it quite frustrating that the edits were changing. Okay. But they, the, the way I wanted to do it was the, the music and the edit to be married up. You know, like, yeah. I don't want to edit a movie to then slap some music over it. I want the two to dance together, to really feel like they were made to exist together in sync. Um, and sometimes he would do a rough draft of something, we would knock it onto a rough edit, and the beat that he had put in would hit an edit at exactly the right moment. you know, Or like he would increase the volume of something just as the scene was fading out. There were all these kind of like random perfect moments um, and some sometimes it was the opposite. Sometimes the music didn't sync up at all. And so he would want to change the music, but I loved the way he had done it. So I would change the edit instead. And that was a very important process for me. It was to make sure that those two things married up seemingly very naturally. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's good to follow the music as well. Um, well, I never tried, you know, um, the little experience, uh, few little projects I made but it's uh, who was that was composing the music um, I don't remember what director but they have to, the music play live uh, is it Godfather oh yeah you can see the Godfather quite regularly with the live orchestra Nightmare Before Christmas as well but I mean that they actually they film some scenes with the music play live in the scene so it kind of wasn't they kind of create the music first they remember exactly what yes but it's it's kind of like it's not the godfather it's um it's, it's good to, to give space to les miserables i know they did that on les miserables uh tom okay. hooper's les miserables okay they they had well that's a musical so yeah but they they were actually playing the music mm. live on set which was quite unusual yeah yeah yeah, it's you know it's important to give space to to the music as well because with cinema it's not TV, 
So as I always say as well, like you, do, you want you want to give space to the emotion. You want to give time to an audience to feel the feelings and the emotions of your characters and the story. You want yeah. to give time, and music helps that. Such a, like it brings to a different level. Everything else, like you know, I'm, I'm sure, like as you say, like when you lay your music <clears throat> on your film, it actually, oh well, it brings everything to a new level. Like you know, that's 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 a, the good soundtracks, and so it's yeah, important it, to it, give space to a composer as well. Exactly, exactly, and it's not it's not just wallpaper. You know, it's mm. uh, it is part of the story. Yeah, and that's that's what I really wanted. Like. It's part of the narrative. The music is also saying something. It's not informing what your emotions should be. It is the narrative. It's part of the narrative. Yeah. 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 All right. Let's let's uh, maybe move a bit more on um, the other part of uh, Philip, uh, the archive producer. Um, you've been working <laughs> full time for a while, right? Uh, you work for uh, documentary series and features, uh, as we say in the intro, like Williams. Uh, the Narcos War and the words Mox Extreme for National Geographic, Netflix, and Channel 4. Um, what can you tell about this experience? Uh, how did it all start? How, it, how is it to work for these kind of big and lengthy productions, which are, you know, I never had a kind of feeling, you know, as an archive producer, you probably work from the beginning of to almost the end of a whole production. So it will take a long time, right? Well, you would think, but that's not always the case, unfortunately. So basically, as an archive producer, what I do is I come onto a project that needs any, any material that is from a third party. It's not specially shot. It already exists. It was shot by someone else. There's a copyright uh, holder involved. And so as an archive producer, I come in, I help find that material. I help find the who owns the rights, and I broker the negotiations uh, to be allowed to use that material in the production. So the terms, like the legal terms of the, the contract, as well as the fee, making sure that that fits into the budget of the production. Um, and this could be anything from, a, a, you know, dramatic feature films. Every time you see something playing in the background, there was someone involved who had to clear that. And it can be a hell of a lot of work for only a few seconds of, you know, a clip of only a few seconds. Um, so... You know, anything from that all the way to a historical documentary that has a lot of historical footage in it to yeah, television documentaries and series um, where there's any historical footage or, again, any footage that was shot by somebody else. Um, so that's essentially what an archive producer does. Um, so it's, it's not physical production. It's not going out onto set. Um, it's a desk job. Um, but... It's every day is different and every project is very different, which is which is amazing. Um, and uh, yeah, I work with editors, you know, on a daily basis and execs and producers and um, very often the projects that I like to work on are the ones where the narrative is basically driven by the archive, by the material that exists. So Narco Wars, for example, which only just premiered on uh, National Geographic, is a 10-part series on um, uh, the history of the Latin American drug cartels. So there's a lot there about El Chapo and Pablo Escobar, uh, you know, the war on drugs, Bush, Reagan. Um, and the challenge for that was, well, these stories have been told several times before. 
what can we present that's fresh, you know? And you start to go looking for footage of Pablo Escobar. You want the footage that no one else has seen, you know? That's the idea. Um, so, and, and a lot of these stories are driven by what was in the news at the time, what the press and the media were saying, uh, what announcements uh, presidents or state officials were making on these issues, uh, what photo, what family photographs exist of these couples, these gangsters. Um, yeah, and, and a lot of it is working with copyright, which I think is exciting. I'm very interested. I'm kind of like a little bit of a copyright geek I've become over the years because I think licensing is something that all filmmakers should understand. You know, who owns the work? If you produce something, if you make something, like who owns that? You know, and I think copyright, especially in this day of like social media and infinite content creation, it's something that we should really be teaching at school, but we don't alongside other things that we really should be teaching and don't like your democratic system. How does that work? You know, how does your, how powerful is your vote? Where does that vote go? How are taxes worked out? How much should you be paying? What happens with that tax money and copyright? What is copyright? Who owns the material that you shoot on a mobile phone? Uh, that YouTube video that you saw, you know, who, who owns that? Are you allowed to share that? I think these things should be, should be taught. And most importantly, um, you should understand that that stuff is, is yours and that you can monetize it. Um, you can license it for money and that that money is available. It exists. So, um, yeah, copyright clearance is, uh, kind of how I'm, I'm currently spending most of, most of my day, um, as well as research. Yeah. But how, how did you get to that? How do you get to, to work on these productions? I was working for a producer on some uh, feature films, but there was this big movie um, that was lined up and it was a Fox Studios production and it, it fell through. And the producer I was working with couldn't uh, continue keeping me on. Um, and I had to find work and I had to find work very quickly because I still had my my debts from my uh, my master's degree. And um, there was an opening at a, at a film archive uh, called Footage Farm. Um, and this was like, a, it, I mean, it, it is a massive collection of historical archive, the history of the 20th century, basically, on VHS, believe it or not, um, which I loved. You'd walk into this tiny office in a Soho basement and the walls were just covered in VHS tapes. It was amazing. Wow. Um, and the little kind of knowledge that I had about copyright and licensing, um, the knowledge that I had from filmmaking, you know, my background in production, in editing, um, it kind of seemed like the perfect job. So basically filmmakers, producers, directors would call up and they'd say, you know, we're doing a World War II series. What have you got on these D-Day landings? Or do you have this president's speech or something like that? And we would find it and uh, find it for them and sell it to them. Um, and I did that for a few years. And then someone at the BBC uh, had headhunted me and uh, brought me in to do the same at the BBC. So basically representing the BBC's material for productions outside of the BBC that needed BBC material. So a lot of wildlife, you know, a lot of people want um, to show great wildlife footage. Um, a lot of people need royal footage. The BBC, of course, have journalists all over the world. So um, 
I was researching and, and licensing a lot of the news material. And that department that I was at, at the BBC, after a couple of years that I was there, um, it didn't get bought out, but Getty Images, who are one of the world's biggest uh, stills and video brokers in the world, sales agents, essentially, um, they struck up a deal with that department at the BBC to represent the BBC's archive. Um, and so I got moved over to Getty Images and, um, and I found myself really in, um, the environment became too corporate. In other words, mm. it was more about hitting sales targets than it was about research and filmmaking. And I always thought about doing it. So I took the leap and I went freelance and I thought, well, um, I don't need the nine to five anymore. Uh, I can just go out and do it on my own. So I switch sides basically. So I, I now work with the productions and I'm the guy going to get the images to BBC, to Footage Farm, um, locating that stuff and negotiating the rates and, and so on and so forth. So I'm, I now work with the productions. So it satisfies, you know, so many of my interests being on this side of the fence for sure. Yeah, it's good to know the other side as well, like, uh to know how to yeah. deal, to make good deals and things. And uh, Exactly. And how long was it? I just watched those clips you sent me last night, uh, the, the Narcos War, like actually, I, you know, I was like, I, I, mm. I don't remember exactly about the Williams one, I remember watching that as well, but the Narcos War, like it's just, it's basically, it looks like you made the film. Because <laughs> there is the interview, the guy, <laughs> the, the guy, the cartel, and the, it's all, archive footage and it's beautiful archive footage mm. you know when he talks about the yellow beetle you see a beautiful shot of a yellow beetle coming down the road it's yeah. like you know beautiful close-ups i guess everything has been probably clean up as well as footage i don't know if you had to rescan or to give a, a, a proper uh, 4k or 2k scans i don't know but it, it looks amazing and uh and sometimes i question like uh, actually uh reenactment is probably it's better, it's better going with the archive footage than reenactments. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Something more impressionistic. I mean, that yellow um, VW Beetle that you mentioned, I mean, it's uh, the, I, I, I'm working with an archive researcher and he, he happened to stumble across that shot and we couldn't believe our luck. We just could not believe our yeah. luck. Um, but yeah, it's an archive heavy show and it's a huge team. It's an amazingly talented team. Um, and that that's what really makes the job worth it though isn't it look it's it's the people that you're working with sure. um you know and, and and that really makes all of the hardships worthwhile all of the long hours um but yeah it is an archive heavy show and some of that archive i'm yeah, really proud of yeah how, how long did it take to for this job like i came on oh you mean the narco war series yeah i came on in uh, september of last year of uh 2019 so it's been uh, well over a year now, about 14 months uh, from my joining to, to it broadcasting on TV. So it's a long process negotiating these contracts and, and finding ways of making it all affordable. And for the editors as well to, to flesh those stories out and bring them to life. There's a long process there. And we got really lucky with some of the people that we were interviewing. Um, we interviewed some you know, amazing people. I mean, Pablo Escobar's son and, and his widow, um, 
as well as uh, you know the the law enforcement agents that were involved in in taking some of these cartels down. Um, so yeah, we I think we all feel very lucky. Yeah. Yeah, it looks very interesting uh, project. It's uh, riveting. I mean, th- th- there have been a lot of projects on on the subject of Latin American drug cartels. Um, and I was a little bit hesitant in joining another one because I, it's not so, it's a very serious subject and it's not something I wanted to be involved in if it was going to glamorize the, mm-hmm. the issues. Uh, you know, Colombia and Mexico are two countries that have been devastated by, by these, these issues. And, and I wanted to make sure that they, they, they are political issues. And I'm glad that we, we brought that to light. That's great. Hopefully, it can help as well. <coughs> Sorry, but yeah, I, you were talking about uh, on the side. You you have lots of projects, and uh, you, you oh, still yeah. want to direct and produce, I guess. Absolutely. Or, or is it is it more kind of films or documentaries? We we're talking about some making a documentary as well a while ago. Or what's your new projects and ideas like? Uh, what you what is cooking at the moment? Oh, Luca, Luca, Luca! My <laughs> directing, uh, the little animal inside is trying to burst out, you know, and direct yeah, another no, movie. Another <laughs> yeah, God, you know, you just want to get on with it. Um, but Narco Wars really has been. Um, I've been committed to Narco Wars for the past year. It's it's been taking a lot of ta- a lot of my time, um, but in the meantime, I have been writing the screenplay, which is the thing I want to direct next. Um, And then at the same time, you know, a a documentary would be a good idea as well. An archive heavy documentary would be a good idea for me to direct. So I'm working on that as well. So, you know, you're writing, writing a script on the one hand, which is now on its third draft and putting together a proposal for this documentary, which is now in its second draft or so. and you do That's what you correct. have to, you know, what you usually do. You speak to people, you you put feelers out, who's doing what, who's interested in this kind of topic, and you start to pull people together and resources. Yeah. And of course, when you start with a ten thousand pound feature debut for your next one, you kind of wanna go up a little bit. Not just add a zero, but a zero plus a little bit more. Um so yeah. 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 Bring up a bit of ambitions. Um, what what the, what the projects are about? Like, can you give us any hint? Yeah, or sure. It should stay secret. No, no. I mean, I think I think it's important to talk about. Um, well, actually, the documentary. I'm not going to say too much about the okay. the documentary. I can tell you in one sentence. I can give you the logline. The documentary <laughs> is a movie about talking about movies. Oh yes. That's what it is. All right. We all love movies. And if you love movies, it also means you like to talk about movies. Right. So I wanted to explore that in all of its different facets. And the the fiction film is um, my my roots are Polish. So my my parents are Polish. Um, And that's something I wanted to explore a little bit. So um, it's a difficult topic to talk about. It's not exactly the most joyful one, but it's it's about a a woman escaping from an abusive uh, situation of domestic violence, um, and she she runs from Poland and hides in London. 
Um, it's set post-Brexit. Um, so she's in the UK illegally. She's working as a cleaner illegally. And a detective suddenly turns up in London from Poland asking her questions about her husband's disappearance, which kind of shakes up her day-to-day hidden existence um, and brings back bad memories. And she realizes that she hasn't actually dealt with the grief of, um, of the abuse that she had suffered back home. Um, so it's not, when, I, when I've mentioned the story to people in the past, people uh, often make references to other movies, uh, but that's often been women kind of fighting back you know, and and getting revenge or uh, just running from physical abuse. This movie, Maria's Silence, um, is actually about a woman trying to come to terms with the with the inner pain. You know, with the with the inner turmoil, um, trying to rise above the abuse, and that's yeah, that's the crux of of Maria's Silence. So. It'll be a Polish-British co-production, but how that will work, I haven't worked out yet. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, and finally, we should talk a little bit about uh, your other passion, which is uh, writing film reviews. Uh, as I say, like, uh, watch your uh, your video, Contagion, uh, the video review. And Oh, I, can, yeah. I can see how you are a Kai producer as well <laughs> and how you made everything work very well and it actually it really hit the point to me of watching Contagion during a pandemic and the choice of, a, of someone to release that film uh, at that time um, so it, it, it was very very interesting uh, but you know you also have this, the website third image um, what's what's the push for writing reviews and uh, I know you, you want <laughs> to also make it a documentary about people talking about making films so uh, there you go it, it, what would you like more would you like more to write reviews or direct films and producing films or you want to do both how that okay. works together influence each other <laughs> well, I, first of all, I don't, I don't think we need to choose. I think uh, if you can, do it all, okay, first of all. So <laughs> let's not uh, box each other into categories, you know. I think uh, if you feel like being creative, go all out. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we all love to talk about movies, right? You don't just go to watch a film. You want to then talk about it. We all do that. That's part of the fun. Um, so, so. Yeah, that's why I think uh, it would be a great topic for for a documentary. And you call them reviews, and and you're right to a certain extent they are reviews. But really, if if you if you read them all, you'll notice they're all positive. So it's not so much a review; it's just writing about the movies that I like, you know, hmm. that I want to recommend. Um, I mean, it started like I've always been. Yeah, I mean, even at school, when I was obsessed with movies, people would always come up to me and ask me, what should I watch? You know, or have you seen this yet? Have you been to the movies yet to see Matrix? And I was like, no, I haven't seen Matrix. Should I? And then, uh, you know, I'd watch it. It's amazing. And then I'd go and tell everyone that I have to see it. But yeah, I've always been recommending movies to people. And so when social media started up, one of the things I did on Facebook was I, I was using Facebook to basically recommend movies to people. And at the end of each year, I would kind of do a countdown of the movies that I've seen. Um, so it's not, 
it's not like what I think are the best movies of that of this year that that came out this year. I think that's really unfair because how am I supposed to know what the best movies are if I don't watch all of them, right? If you're a film critic, your job is to sit and watch the latest releases. Fine. As a fan, that's not what I do. I can't keep up with every single release. Plus, there's a massive, there's like 120 years of history behind us. You know, like there's a lot to catch up on. And I don't, you know, I, I want to watch through as much as I can. So I don't just want to keep watching new things. And there's a danger if we only focus on all the new movies, then some old gems are just going to get lost. Movies that people who enjoy movies should be watching because they'll they'll like them too. So at the end of each year, I would kind of post the top 10 of the movies that I had seen for the first time that year. And that had just started as a list, like 10 down to one. And then I started to do a few paragraphs for each one. And then it would be like, I'd post one movie a day because there was so much text. I'd really go for it. You know, I'd write like mini essays about the movie. Mm. Um, and I've been doing that just on my personal Facebook page and people really look forward to it. Um, I've been touched by some of the reactions, but you know, every Christmas people are waiting for me to post. And if I, if I miss a day, if I don't post like number six, then I start getting private messages of people saying, dude, hurry up. I'm waiting for you to post the next one. Um, and it's, I've, I've, I've asked myself, why do I do it? And it's, it's a great, first of all, it's a great writing exercise because it forces me to have to write every day and to write fast and succinctly and honestly. Um, so it, it, it is a very good exercise because it, it forces you to sit down and write, even when you don't want to, um, you have to do it because there are people waiting, you know, to hear. It's, it's, uh, it's a good little pressure to give yourself. But the other thing was that, yeah, I, I love talking about movies. I like reflecting on films. Um, and for some reason this year I figured, okay, I'm going to take it outside of my own personal Facebook feed and actually do it publicly. So hence the third image was born. So it's like, it's a website, uh, thirdimage.org. There's an Instagram, there's a Twitter, which I really need to get into the habit of updating more. Um, and I will get to that. But um, yeah, this is the first year where I'm actually going to do the countdown publicly as well as on my on my personal Facebook. Um, yeah, it's, it's just an opportunity. If you're in lockdown, if you don't know what to watch, if you need some inspiration, check out third image and hopefully there'll be something something there that that inspires you you know that's probably the same how the podcast started you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i was going to ask you about that time but you know it's that's something that especially because i teach you know and i hope like students will be inspired by the story and uh, uh-huh. and to find the struggles as well you know and say okay this is not for me <laughs> Something I should have known before I started as well, like right. uh, maybe. But it, it it is it is a good hobby, and it's it is a good pressure on writing. It's the same thing, like it keep you. It's for mental health, you know. Sometimes, like that's what I. It was good to to find something to put pressure. Um, so apart yep. from gardening, when I was in lockdown, like it's there was not much to do, you know. I wasn't any preps for films or anything. So at the moment, so. That's how it's born, and uh, I want to keep it going. It's a good, it's a good thing, you know. Have a 
healthy, good hobby. It's been a while because my job has been my hobby since. Uh, so that's a good way of get, putting, putting get, it. You go crazy with it. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. I think we're lucky to be doing the thing that we actually love, right? Yeah. Our hobby. Yeah. I, you know, uh, Roger Deakins also started up a, a podcast during lockdown. Yeah. I see, I see. It's it, like 100 episodes already, something like it. The, the, not the 100, output is but crazy. What can I say? Like, yes, he had, the man has competition, you know. You, uh, <laughs> you did the right thing. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think mostly it's his wife is uh, organizing and he pops in the chats and she's really into organizing. But yeah, it's interesting. Um, yeah, podcasts, something I rediscovered uh, lockdown I was something actually the, the, the first time kind of thought uh, just gonna do it you know without thinking mm. about this is gonna take time or anything and sometimes it's just nice to let yourself go so I exactly. said it's a good time to do it um, when you, you know kind of like in, in the pandemic time that we're being so it was good to release that just do it just make it you know it's 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 a bit like I learned from my, uh, from the filmmaking, you know, so don't want to think too much about sometimes you just, just do it, start doing something and then you're going to see it, you know, exactly. you're going to be too much, um, thinking about then you ended up not doing it. You know, that's, that's what I learned, you know, um, it doesn't matter if it's something good or not, but it's, it's good to have this kind of hobbies, you know, and hopefully mm. can build up an audience, um, Depends. It depends on content. I always believe, you know, probably like your reviews. It's always about good content, and eventually, things um, will get the feedback that they deserve, you know, or not. But in fairness, for me, it's a hobby, so I don't expect anything, which is great. <laughs> it's not like my job, you know, which I have expectation and I have to push myself into something. You know. It's important. Yeah, to I have see hobbies. what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's important to, if you have something of interest like that, turn it into a discipline, you know, just do it. Don't think about too far ahead. Don't think about w w what will this bring me or what will it do for me? Turn it into a discipline and the results will come in. The positive results will come in and the sad, this personal satisfaction will come in as well. And then that just, that's a wave that spreads through the rest of your life, you know, when you could be personally satisfied from a discipline. Absolutely. Yeah, it's amazing with filmmaking how much I learned about discipline, um, which was kind of probably against back on my youth. Um, but that's something I teach students as well. Uh, it's important to learn discipline because it's 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 the way to, to get things done, you know, basically. Yeah. And, and it's the way also you, when you work in films to respect each other, you know, so not to mm. be in the way of the others and and actually to be to to be able to collaborate and create. So uh, yeah, I, I have my discipline as well on making mm. this podcast. So it's 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 important to do it, to have it. Um, but um, I, I wanted to ask, but probably you can't say it, but. I think this is this episode is gonna come out in in January. <laughs> so okay, maybe you could talk about uh, what's your favorite film then? They come out this of year. the year, just the one. <laughs> no, there's no, 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 no one no. film. I, I know there is no one film, but I put you in pressure to decide maybe one. 
what you want me to reveal now the, the my favorite film of 2020 <laughs> i can't do that you gotta you you gotta follow the twitter and the instagram and you can find out but when, when you're gonna reveal that uh, when am i gonna reveal it oh close to the end of december close to the end of december okay. i'm afraid so by the time this is published this podcast those 10 results will be up yeah yeah so you can't anticipate us this is going to uh, be at the end of january come out end of january gosh well by now you will know that um uh my favorite film of the year that i think everybody should watch is <clears throat> yeah that's oh, a really good one def- so unfortunate what <laughs> what what do you mean you lost the audio yeah yeah well well, they will have to follow you. You know, yeah. I'll put the link in the third yeah, image on the website. Just log on. That's how it is. Oh. <laughs> damn technology. Little man, uh, let, let's ask you uh, another couple of quick questions and then we're going to wrap up uh, this Shoot. nice chat. And uh, then we will have more time to, sp- another, another day maybe to go more in specifics on something, you know. But, uh, you know, if you would like to give an advice to someone, uh, like to start working uh, in the film and TV industry. Um, what's your cut? What's your um, advice? Is any advice? Anything you learned that you wish you knew before? Wow. Um, oh man, I've been given some really good advice over the years, and um, and I. Uh, I'm now struggling to remember any of it when you put me, when you asked me the question. But I guess my first piece of advice is that advice is crucial. Um, but there is something else, which is that there is also such a thing as too much advice. Um, I'll put it to you like this. Look, I remember, I'll tell, I'll tell this, short, this story as quickly as I can. I remember when, when working for a producer, um, he had given me a script that someone had sent him. And he said, look, I think this is a mess, but I want you to read it and tell me what you make of it. And at the time, I already kind of had ambitions of writing directing. So I was like, this is a great opportunity. I read the script and it was, I think I can say, I won't say what it was about, but it, it, was, a, it was a biopic uh, of a historical figure. And the script was an absolute mess. And it was, it was clearly written by someone who had never done screenwriting. And, but, but there was a good story there. I wrote out a whole bunch of notes. I did diagrams. I did the whole thing. And I said to, the, to, to my producer, I said, look, this is what I think sh- the script needs. He said, this is fantastic. He put it forward to the producers who had brought him that screenplay. And they wanted to interview me um, to potentially write the film. And at the time, I had absolutely no idea what a writer's fee was, uh, which is ironic because I was in an office with basically full of uh, cabinets with people's contracts, so I could have just checked. But some of these people were quite big Hollywood names. So whereas I was just starting out, I literally had no idea what to say. And my, my employer at the time basically suggested a figure. And the number was very high. It was higher than what I thought I should be asking for. But he was the more experienced, he was the older, wiser producer. I took his advice. So I turned up to this meeting. It lasted a couple of hours, which is long for a meeting. Um, 
we're sitting there, I'm telling them all these ideas, they're loving it, we're talking about structure. Then closer to the end of the meeting, it gets a bit more personal about like my relationship with this character, how do I relate, what is it that I understand about the character. And the meeting was over, and they said, oh, listen, one more thing, uh, what's your fee? So I broke the fee down to them, and I can't tell you how I felt the temperature in the room drop. It, I, my heart sank and I knew at that moment there I gave them the figure that I was advised to give against my own instinct and I got back to London because I had to travel for that meeting and uh, my employer asked me how did the meeting go I, I said great but I don't think I'm going to get it he said why I think they just don't want to pay that much so I was honest with him I wish I had been honest with myself and I didn't get the gig because they, did, they didn't want to pay that much for a screenwriter. I'm sure they took all of my advice and stored it somewhere and gave, gave it on to the next screenwriter. As far as I know, the movie was never made. But um, my advice is just do what you think is, do, do what you think is right. You know, ask for advice, but then remember to recalibrate and do what you think is right. Every time I've listened to my own instinct, I haven't felt bad about doing so. I haven't regretted any moment when I've just listened to my own heart. And there were times when I was torn between two decisions and my own heart was saying something that seemed completely stupid to, contrary to the advice that I was getting. And in my head, I was like, I should follow this advice. But in my heart, it, was, it just felt so wrong. And every time when I've gone with my heart, somehow that was always the better decision. Yeah, yeah, I understand you. Um, it's not easy, is it? <laughs> no, it's especially in an industry where there's so many people and you're going to be working with a lot of people and production is hard. It's a lot of work. The hours are long. You will be stuck with the people that you're working with for a while. So choose who you work with. <laughs> I think it's another one. But yeah, definitely. Last question. Um, you just moved back to France. Um, is there any fame-related reason I just want a bit more Oh, sunshine? good question. <laughs> good question. Well, first of all, I haven't moved back to France. I mean, do you mean from my student days? Because I lived in Paris um, when I was 21. Okay. Um, but, um, yeah, no, I'm in Lyon. Uh, I'm a Londoner. But my girlfriend and I just moved to Lyon, so I am surrounded by absolute mess right now, which you can't see, thankfully, because uh, we're still unpacking. But um, we just wanted to change. I wanted to get away from London, um, experience and live something new. Uh, and Lyon is an absolutely beautiful city. It's the birthplace of cinema. Look, this is where cinema was born. This is where the first film was made. The Lumiere house is like a half hour walk away from me where the first film was ever shot. You know, you can come out of that warehouse and replicate, uh, replicate that first film. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a city that really loves its cinema heritage. Um, we just had the Fête des Lumières the, the other day. So you have like these projections onto buildings. Um, and it's, it's the French gastro capital. So I am eating and drinking like a king here. I feel very comfortable indeed. So movies, food, and wine. Huh? 
It's, it's more the food and wine than the movies. <laughs> the proper reason, maybe. Exactly. So, but That's you can work basically um, uh, remotely, right? You've been working uh, during the pandemic, so that's kind of like you can keep your clients basically. Or you want to have a change as well on terms of like some type of, uh, of jobs you want to make, or you keep you're still enjoying being an archive producer. I'm st still doing another project for National Geographic at the moment uh, as an archive producer. It's all remote work. Um, and that's working. It's working out great. It just means everything's a little bit slower. I mean, I was on a on a two hour call today with an editor. So it's just a shame that I can't go into an edit suite and then we can talk things over in the edit. So yeah, it's, it's all done remotely over over virtual video right now. Um, but uh, no, I'm, I'm continuing that work whilst, excuse me, I'm continuing that work whilst at the same time um, uh, getting Maria Silence ready. I'll be traveling to Poland soon to start pitching that. Um, yeah, so a little bit of everything. Geography doesn't matter anymore, you know. All right, thank you very much for your time, Philip. Uh, really enjoyed as always and Thank hopefully you, we'll get a chance to work together and chat soon again I'm again. sure of that um, to know more about Philip's work check out the links in the episode description and don't forget to find and subscribe to Carpe Diem on your favorite app and social media you can find the links at the, our website carpediem.podbean.com and please leave a review or a comment or both I hope you enjoy our chat today. Until the next one, ciao.